I do solemnly swear. I, Amy Tony Barrett, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. The U.S. election is four days away, but there's already been a change in power in another branch of government. Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed on Monday to be the sixth Republican-appointed justice on the Supreme Court. Filling the vacant seat on the court was a major victory for Republicans. Here's Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell explaining why. A lot of what we've done over the last four years will be undone sooner or later by the next election. Won't be able to do much about this for a long time to come. The U.S. Supreme Court is one of the most powerful high courts in the world. Its decisions impact everything from abortion to health care to environmental legislation. And it also weighs in on elections, something that President Trump has mentioned in his push to confirm Barrett before the vote. This election has already been subject to an unprecedented number of lawsuits, the most in U.S. history. From the ballot envelopes, to the stamps, to the polling places, to the deadlines, if it's part of the election, there's probably a lawsuit. A lawsuit that might go to the Supreme Court. The headline says, it's going to be hell. How Pennsylvania is on track for election chaos. The justices could still consider the Republican challenge again after the election. And the voters most impacted by these decisions are often minorities especially Black voters. So we're asking, how will today's Supreme Court protect the right to vote? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I'm talking with Professor Fernita Tolson, a vice dean at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law. She's an expert on voting rights and voter suppression. This election is already underway. Tens of millions of Americans have already voted. And some researchers have found that there are racial disparities in whose votes are getting counted in some states. There are also problems with voting in a pandemic. What are some of the specific issues we see that could cause a mail-in ballot to be rejected? The COVID-19 global pandemic was a situation in which many of the weaknesses in our election system were really exacerbated in some ways late there. In a normal presidential election year, absentee ballots that are cast by people of color tend to be rejected at higher rates than ballots cast by white voters. And so in the middle of a global pandemic, that is exacerbated. And that's what's happening. There's a new report out that sheds light on how vote-by-mail threatens to disenfranchise the very people suffering the most in the pandemic, voters of color. In North Carolina, more than a million people have requested mail-in ballots this year. But the rate of rejection for mail-in ballots is four times higher for Black voters than white ones. Voter registration data is public, but states also keep track of racial data in terms of how people are voting and who's voting. And so people who look at election-related data, they're able to tell pretty clearly whose votes are being rejected. And so that's how we know it's racialized. I try not to be too judgmental because I do think election administrators just want to get it right, right? They want to count the ballots. They want to have an outcome that people can trust. 
When we talk about disparities, it really does vary by state. There are some areas where it's worse than others, but I do think the causes of the disparities tend to be somewhat universal. We'll get to the causes of the disparities in a bit, but first, let's look at what's happening in some of the states. A lawsuit is challenging the way that Missouri has set up voting by mail for some. In Wisconsin, the Supreme Court said that ballots must be received by Election Day. But in Pennsylvania and North Carolina, they essentially said the opposite. Texas voters suing to overturn an order restricting the number of ballot drop boxes in each of the state's counties to just one, one box per county. There has been one legal decision after another in North and South Carolina, Texas, Ohio, and more. And that's just for absentee ballots. In other states, like Georgia, it's the in-person voting that's making headlines. Georgia has made headlines, and, and, and really for the wrong reasons. In many counties, long lines stretching down streets and around buildings, and it's not even election day. I think people are just really ready to vote, and it doesn't matter how long it takes, we will stand in line to vote. Like, our life depends on it. I know that we look at these long lines and we say, look, people are really excited about this election. But the long lines also reflect a core problem in our system, right? There's no reason for people to wait in line eight, nine, 10 hours, as some people had to do when they voted in early voting in Georgia in recent days. If you're getting food delivered, that's a problem. That is not sort of a a shining moment of our democracy. And in in some ways, it is part of a longstanding attempt to make it more difficult for people to vote. And so when we look at what's happening now, this is all part of the narrative. So something many people are wondering is about the role of the Supreme Court in this election. What is different this year is that voting lawsuits are already at an all-time high for an election with days to go. What are some of those lawsuits about and how is the Supreme Court weighing in on them? A lot of the lawsuits that we've seen have to do with absentee ballots. In in particular, there's a question of for states that require receipt of your ballot by election day, can that be extended? So this is one thing that really does vary by jurisdiction. Every state has its own deadline for when absentee ballots should be received. Some states it's election day. Some states it's within a few days of election day. Some states even allow it to be as late as a week or more past election day, and they will still count it. There are 30 states that require absentee ballots to be received by Election Day. But with the huge numbers and logistical issues from the pandemic, there were battles over extending those deadlines. And the Supreme Court has already ruled against some of those extensions. And there are warning signs even in the states where the court let deadline extensions stand. In Pennsylvania's case, some of the conservative justices wrote that they could reconsider the late arriving votes after the election, and potentially throw them out. Professor Tolson says it's not the fact that lawsuits are happening that's a red flag. After all, litigation is normal for a presidential election. But the sheer volume of litigation at this point is a bit strange, right? I mean, we know the cause of it. We know it's COVID-related, but but just the, the sheer amount of lawsuits, the number of states where litigation is taking place, I think that might be unprecedented. The lawsuits, the long lines, the court decisions flying back and forth, all of it seems to make voting more difficult. I asked Professor Tolson to explain how voter suppression factors into it all. The answer is, it's not that simple. 
I think some of the confusion around voter suppression is that people are looking for bad actors. So they're expecting, you know, someone who is aggressively working to keep you from voting. When we talk about voter suppression, what we mean is, is any practice that raises the cost of participation. Voter registration, where you have to send in your information to election officials about who you are, raises the cost of participation. But it is not considered suppressive anymore. A hundred years ago, voter registration was considered suppressive. It caused a lot of people to get kicked off the voter rolls, deliberately so. Another example is voter identification laws. A lot of states require you to have some form of photo identification in order to cast a ballot. But a lot of times it is difficult for people to get what they need in order to get that identification. And in some cases they can't vote. But it's much more difficult to police because a lot of our restrictions can be suppressive even though they are illegal. Why is it, do you think, that voting in the United States seems to have so many obstacles around it and always has. History tells us as two Black women talking to each other, we know that there literally has always been an obstacle for certain people to vote. Why is that? Because education and political power are two of the clearest paths to upward mobility in this country. If you look at our history, this country has long been dominated by white people, just speaking frankly, right? And so anytime you have a racial or political minority trying to get political power in this country, it's a threat to the status quo that has pretty much existed since the founding. And so because they see it as a threat, then these battles become very partisan and very hard fought, right? And, and so like every time I think about this issue and tell sort of the story of why we have these fights over voting and elections, it almost sounds like all hope is lost. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and I don't mean to sound that way. Like, like, yes, we have been litigating some of the same battles for 200 years, sure. But it is a trajectory, right? So think about it this way. Every two steps forward, yes, we take a step back, but we're still moving forward. And so it's pretty remarkable that in five decades, we've been able to push back against 150 years of massive disenfranchisement for Black people, women, people with disabilities, poor folks. Like The fact that we've been able to at least turn the page on some of that shows that it's it's worth the fight. So what is the argument in favor of these laws that are shown to make voting less accessible? Voter fraud. That... By having more restrictive voting regulations, you can prevent voter fraud. This show is not the venue for me to lay out all the evidence, but I can tell you this. Voter fraud is a serious problem in this country. You have millions of people who are registered in two states or who are dead or who are registered to vote. But numerous studies have shown that the presence of fraud in our elections is it's very rare. There was a study that the Washington Post did a few years ago where it showed that there have been 31 instances, I mean, credible allegations, not convictions, of voter fraud out of more than 1 billion votes cast. And so there's, there's, there's not nearly enough fraud to justify a restriction that makes voting harder as a general matter. But that is usually the excuse that people point to. I want to make a second point, though, that I've been thinking about recently. At some point, voting has become about deservedness. And I don't know when this happened. I don't know when it sort of transitioned from, you know, voting being a right that preserves all of the rights, voting being a fundamental right, into, well, voting is a privilege like driving. 
And if you want to vote, then you have to overcome all of these barriers. And it's fine for states to put these obstacles up because you have to prove that you've earned it, that you deserve it. So the courts in particular became less protective of the right to vote. They stopped enforcing it as a right. So when states say, we need this in order to prevent voter fraud, the Supreme Court will say, okay. And then they don't require the state to come forward with any actual evidence of voter fraud. And how do you say that something is a right when you're allowing states to impose restrictions based on flimsy justifications? Yet somehow this is the world that we live in now. It's a world that seems out of step with the laws the U.S. already has to prevent voter disenfranchisement and voter suppression. That would be the Voting Rights Act, passed more than a half century ago. Black men actually got the right to vote a century before that, but it took the Voting Rights Act to clear the barriers put in their way. So prior to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, Black voter registration and turnout was close to zero in many Southern states. The states had effectively suppressed the vote for well over a century. Well, this won't be a history lesson. I do want to touch a little bit more on the disenfranchisement because I know that you often ask your law students to take a literacy test. They said before you can vote, you, you have to do some additional things. States passed laws that limited the rights of African Americans to vote, including things like literacy tests, which were rigged. So this is a way to, to prove to my law students that they're not as smart as they think they are. <laughs> <laughs> they were hard. They were hard. They, they were meant to fail. Right. So it's, it's actually very humbling for someone who is in law school to take a test that I think the one that I normally give is Alabama's 1965 literacy test. And it has 60 or 65 questions. Wow. And you get like 20 minutes wow. to answer the questions, just basic questions about the U.S. Constitution. But who can answer 65 questions about the U.S. Constitution in 20, 25 minutes? But also keep in mind, a lot of this is about administrator discretion. So even if someone passed, the election administrator would still fail them because the entire point of it was to um, keep African-Americans from registering to vote. And so they did that. Even if you passed, you failed. The Voting Rights Act outlawed those literacy tests and many other forms of voter disenfranchisement. And at the heart of the legislation was something called pre-clearance. Jurisdictions with a history of disenfranchisement had to get new voting laws approved by the federal government before they could be changed. They had to be pre-cleared. So anytime a state wanted to come in and make voting harder, they had to get permission from the federal government. And the federal government said, no, you can't do it. But what the system of oversight did was allow African-Americans to register and vote at historic levels. So all of a sudden, post-1965, you have African-Americans running for public office. You have them voting in numbers that completely remade the Southern political systems. The Voting Rights Act was the law of the land for decades. Until in 2013, the conservative majority Supreme Court struck down that pre-clearance provision. It's considered one of the most important pieces of civil rights legislation ever passed. But by five to four, the U.S. Supreme Court today took the teeth out of a law enacted nearly 50 years ago. As Chief Justice John Roberts said, nearly 50 years later, things have changed dramatically. 
Basically, the court ruled that the provision was outdated based on old information about voter disenfranchisement, and it was an unfair burden on the states that they had to get their voting laws approved. And that opened the floodgates. Immediately following the Shelby ruling, several states passed laws that made it harder for people to vote. Stricter voter ID requirements in Alabama, Mississippi, and Texas drew objections from civil rights groups. All of these laws were said to be about preventing voter fraud. But the reality was that they suppressed voter turnout, especially the voter ID laws. The U.S. doesn't have a national ID. So which ID you can use to vote depends on the state. All IDs are not the same, and all voter identification laws are not the same, right? And so Texas had one of the more restrictive photo ID laws where you couldn't use a student ID to vote, but you could use a a hunting license, for example, right? So all of the IDs that they landed on were chosen with an eye towards the demographic that uses them. Access to the ballot is an issue in many states in the 2020 election. And that Supreme Court Voting Rights Act decision helped pave the way. And now, with this new justice, there is a solid conservative majority that's likely to continue ruling against voting rights. That's just one of the reasons that liberals are pushing back by threatening to expand the court and appoint more justices themselves. Packing the Supreme Court. I will vote next year to end the filibuster so we can expand the Supreme Court. We take back the House, we take back the Senate, we take back the presidency, and we pack the Supreme Court of the United States of America. So you have many Democrats and others who are arguing that the court needs to be expanded. And then you have others who say, actually, the issue is the power of the court itself. It has too much power. So what do you think of the argument of expanding versus reforming completely? I'm actually not sure what I think about it. And let me explain why. I think that passions are running so high right now that it's hard to know what a good idea is. The court has been the same size for over 100 years. Congress can change the size of the court by just passing a law. But to the extent that we are concerned about the Supreme Court not accurately representing where we are as a society, Will court pack and solve that problem? And I'm not sure that it will. And then of the argument that the court is just too powerful, what do you make of that? They are, (laughs) right? They are too powerful. The entire country should not come to a standstill when a Supreme Court justice dies. That is true. I'm just not quite sure what to do about it. It just seems like kind of crazy that the, the, that some one individual passing away on a particular date would have such huge ramifications for national politics. Ryan Dorfler is a law professor at the University of Chicago. He researches reforming the Supreme Court. And after this vacancy on the court opened with the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that research gained a lot of interest. You know, you you could see the sort of sense of chaos emerge very quickly where all of a sudden there was this really just tremendous panic about the Supreme Court and also sort of whether institutional reform would be appropriate. Rather than adding justices to change the balance of power, Professor Dorfler and his co-author wrote a paper arguing for something else, a Supreme Court not necessarily with more justices, but less power. What we focus on is a different type of reform that we think is more fundamental and, and really ultimately necessary that would basically take authority away from the court. 
And by doing that, it would make it sort of less consequential exactly who it is that happens to sit on the court. This institution, given its current authority, just wields tremendous, tremendous power within our political system. And so our view is that the best way to remedy that situation is just to make the court less consequential. The proposals include simply passing laws to say that the Supreme Court doesn't have a jurisdiction over certain legislation, or to increase the number of justices to pass a ruling. Often when we describe these proposals to people, the first reaction is like, oh, I didn't know you could do that, right? I just sort of assumed that the Supreme Court had all this authority. Um, But importantly, you can, You, you absolutely can. Professor Dorfler and his co-author think their proposals are less partisan than simply adding justices because they would hand power back to the elected government. Where those questions go then is back to the legislature, right? Back to Congress, back to the democratic arena. Our proposal just says, look, if you want to bring about policy changes, you need to do it by winning elections rather than by appointing Supreme Court justices. That debate on reforming the Supreme Court is set to be a huge point of contention if Democrats win big in November. But either way, there will be major decisions made by the court as it stands, with a new conservative Justice Barrett. I asked Professor Tolson what she expected from her. The Supreme Court becomes more conservative, which might seem trite and, you know, not an extraordinary observation, But you have to think about our baseline. And I think people forget this. The Supreme Court has been terrible on voting rights for 30 years. This is a moment we have been working towards since the early 1990s. So (laughs) my colleagues laugh at me because I'm like, nothing really changes. Things have been getting bad. So all of the bad Supreme Court decisions that have come out with respect to voting in a time of COVID were made without the addition of a new Supreme Court justice, and they were already 5-4. So now they'll just be 6-3. Do you see a change in that or a way around that in your lifetime? Nope. But again, we will not despair. It is not just about the U.S. Supreme Court. So voters themselves are starting to get fed up with some of the anti-democratic elements of our system. I refuse to despair about the loss of the court because it feeds into the narrative that the court is all that matters. And for far too long, we have uh, approached voting rights, the protection of voting rights with that view. We need to think of other things because the court will not save us. So, Professor, one last question here. I saw a quote from a voter in one of the Supreme Court cases that came up last week in Alabama where polling places won't be allowed to provide curbside voting so that people don't have to get out of their cars. And it was from an African-American man in his 70s. He has asthma. He has Parkinson's. So he's someone who is in that high-risk category during the coronavirus pandemic. And he said, quote, so many of my ancestors even died to vote. And while I don't mind dying to vote, I think we're past that. We're past that time, end quote. Is that a statement that surprises you, or do you think that that is an accurate summary of where voting rights are in 2020? I think it's a sad observation about where we are as a country and the fact that someone who's in his 70s can feel like he's still fighting things that should have been put to rest long ago. And in some ways, I find that very disheartening. Right? You know, it should at this point, be a foregone conclusion. 
And honestly, with some of these decisions, like to say that Alabama doesn't have to provide curbside voting, which would significantly help elderly people, people with disabilities, why? Why is that a threat to the state's authority over elections? Is that really the type of thing we're concerned about? Right? Like, it's just, I think we've regressed to a point where it's, it's almost unbelievable. I said that was the final question, but I feel like I need to end on a little optimism. You've, you've sprinkled it throughout. You've said not to despair. But heading into the election, we're days away. What is causing you to not despair? What's giving you hope? That people are waiting. They're waiting to vote. Right? One thing that always gives me hope. Every election cycle, as I get mad at, you know, elected officials for trying to manipulate the system, as I get mad at courts for not trying to, not doing enough to protect voters, the voters give me hope. Because even though I rail against eight-hour lines, right, and I view it as a form of voter suppression, people are still waiting. I don't know what it does to people when you try to take their right to vote away. They get really mad about it, though, right? To me, it's a sad testament that, you know, how can we call ourselves a democracy when people have to wait that long? But the fact that people are willing to wait in order to punish the people who they believe are trying to, (laughs) you know, trample their right to vote, that gives me hope. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke and Nagin Oliai, with Amy Walters, Dina Kispe, Ney Alvarez, Oniwo Hacha, Priyanka Tilvey, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the social media producer. Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Special thanks to the Justice Collaborative. We'll be back. <laughs>